Well, good morning to all of you and uh, Dr. Patterson. I want to thank you for the gracious invitation to come. Uh, this seminary is uh, so special to me, even though I wasn't a student here. I don't believe that I would be the pastor at Sunnyvale First Baptist Church were it not for an encounter uh, that Dr. Allen and I had at the expository preaching workshop here. And so I feel indebted to Southwestern for that. And then, of course, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Patterson were such an encouragement to our family when Carson was battling his leukemia, uh, sending us uh, a passport for him to punch every time we traveled to Memphis, which was 128 plane rides, no less, and uh, just praying for and encouraging us. And then there are so many good friends here, and it is good to be in this company today. I would be remiss if I did not say, at the risk of correcting you, Dr. Patterson, but we have since had a fourth child. Our baby girl, Mallory Kate, is about three months old, and so you pray for us. Maybe we can stop now that we had that little girl. Um, I want to invite you to turn with me to Job chapter 2, Job chapter 2, and I want to talk to you about when you think things cannot get worse from Job chapter 2. July the 10th, 2011 is a day that I will never forget. It began like any typical Sunday morning, save the fact that my wife Heather decided not to accompany me to church that day because my son Carson had a strange red rash on his neck that caused her great concern. And so she opted to take him to the pediatrician, and I went off to church and preached in our services there in Alabama. And when the service was over, I had a text message from her that said, you should probably come to the doctor's office. And when I arrived, we sat and we waited for what seemed like an eternity. And nothing could prepare us for what was about to come. It was 2 p.m. that afternoon when the doctor called us in and said the one word that no parent ever wants to hear. It is just as vivid to me today as it was then. It seemed as if my heart stopped and my spirit wept simultaneously when the doctor said, leukemia, your precious son has leukemia. Now what followed is a whirlwind of activity that frankly still feels like a bad dream all this time later. It took us a few hours just to get our composure. We wept together and tried to call our immediate family to tell them what was happening. And then the doctor came back in and informed us that Carson would have to be admitted to the hospital immediately. She then proceeded to explain that we had two options. He could be treated there in Mobile, Alabama, or we could take him to Memphis, Tennessee, to a place called St. Jude Hospital. When I inquired as to the difference between those two options, she made a statement that captured my attention. She said, we are almost as good at treating cancer here as they are at St. Jude. Well, how many of you know when you're talking about one of your babies, almost isn't good enough? And so that decision was easily made. But we were still rather new to Alabama at the time, and so uh, we didn't even know how to get to Memphis. 
But nonetheless, we drove home when Carson was cleared not to ride in an ambulance, and we started throwing things into a suitcase and uh, trying to figure out how we would get to Memphis. Then my phone rang unexpectedly. It was a friend, uh, an acquaintance really there in Mobile that I, I did not know well, but he was a member of the church that uh, I pastored there. And uh, he said, look, I know what's going on and I don't want you to drive to Memphis. I'm going to fly you there in my plane. And I thought to myself, how, do, how does a member of our church have a plane? And I don't know that. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, we rushed to get things ready and by 7.30 we were getting in that plane and as we lifted off the runway there in Mobile I looked down at the lights of the city and I knew in my heart that things would never be the same. Uh, we landed a couple of hours later and by 10.30 Carson was in the bed at St. Jude Hospital and I listened as doctors explained procedures and I signed waiver after waiver all the while while he was in the background screaming as IVs pierced his little arms. All the while I kept thinking to myself, could things get any worse? Well, I'm happy to tell you that after three years of treatment, Carson, as Dr. Patterson said, is a healthy second grade boy today. He is cancer free and we thank the Lord's provision in that. But what I want to say this morning is that things did get worse before they got better. The three years in which we battled his cancer is by far the most challenging of our lives. We wrestled with every human emotion imaginable. We had to watch helplessly as our son physically transformed before our eyes, losing all of his hair and swelling from all of the medication that he was on. We endured his mood swings that were caused by the steroids that he was forced to take. And we lived with the anxiety of protecting him from sickness and certain foods and germs and a host of other things that seemed to be equivalent with just being a kid. These were the circumstances that drew me into the deep waters of the book of Job. Now, I have to confess that whenever I approach the book of Job, I do so with a certain amount of reverence realizing that most people are drawn to this book because they are already participants in the story rather than mere casual observers. If you're familiar with this book, you know that this is not a story that you want to be part of. Nonetheless, God has used this book in my life repeatedly, and I want to share some of the insights that God gave me through Carson's ordeal. Have you ever felt like things just could not get worse in your life? Maybe things in your family are in disarray. Perhaps you are miserable in your current ministry. Maybe your health is rapidly declining. Or for you, the thought comes as you look back over your life and all you see is disappointment and failure. Though I doubt, I don't doubt the level of suffering that's in your life, I would say that none are more qualified than this man Job to speak to us about the realities of living with adversity. The first time we encounter him in chapter 1, his life is literally falling apart. 
He loses all of his livestock. He loses all of his servants. And ultimately, he loses 10 of his children. Unbeknownst to Job, his adversity is the result of a meeting in heaven between God and Satan. And God gives Satan permission to afflict Job to prove that his allegiance was not self-serving. And just when it seemed like things could not possibly get worse for this man, they actually do. And as they do, there are two realities that emerge about living in seasons of difficulty. The first reality I want to share with you is the fact that the persistence of the devil will disturb you. Look with me at verse number 1. The Bible says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now, what you have here is the same scene from chapter 1 is basically repeated. Job has refused to curse God because of the tragedies in his life. And so, sensing defeat, Satan returns to the throne of God for round two. And I love the descriptions of Job in verse number 3 as the Lord gives testimony to his righteousness. You will notice he says that he is blameless. He is an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God notes the fact that Satan incited him against Job to ruin him without cause. I would say parenthetically at this point, it is important to consider in life what people think of us, but what is of a much greater importance is what God knows about us. And wouldn't it be wonderful for God to say in heaven that we are blameless, that we're righteous, that we turn away from evil? Such was the case with Job. His suffering was not deserved. It was not because he had done anything wrong. And what's insightful about this to me is that Satan's attacks are not always about us. In fact, I would say Satan's attacks aren't primarily about us at all. You'll notice in verse number 4, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. He concludes that Satan or that Job did not suffer enough. And so he offers a colloquialism asserting that uh, a man would give up anything to save his own hide. He says he'll give the skin of his uh, own children to save his own skin. And so Satan wants to destroy Job's health at this point. Verse 5, however, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. Now, what I want you to see here is that this accusation is not primarily about Job. The accusation of verse 5 is primarily about God. The idea is basically this, if you would stop protecting him, Job would curse you to your face, God. 
And this reveals why Satan so viciously attacks us. From the very beginning, he has been a glory stealer. Ezekiel chapter 28 reveals that he was a chief angel responsible for worship in heaven, taking the praise of angels directly to God. But the problem is he starts to see himself as worthy of glory, more glory than God. And so in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, we read, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. In other words, Satan refused to give God glory that he deserved because he wanted it for himself. And the point that I'm trying to make is that the accusation here in the book of Job is not an accusation about Job at all. It is an accusation about God. He is mocking God's glory. He is saying, you are not really worthy of worship. Job would not worship you if you didn't protect him. You have to buy worship. You have to bribe people for their affection. It's, not, it's what you do. It is not who you are that is glorious. And you know there is a similar battle that is taking place in your life and my life. It is true that God uses suffering for our good, and I can certainly attest to all of the wonderful things that God taught us over these last few years. But it is also true that God uses suffering to display His glory. There are times when we suffer to learn important life lessons, but there are also times when suffering has nothing to do with us. And the reason that's significant is because when we do suffer, our tendency is to say, God, why have you forsaken me? God, I don't deserve this. God, you could help me, but you won't. And we pick away at the goodness of God. But the reality is your suffering may not have anything to do with you at all. I think this takes biblical balance. I'm not saying that every trial doesn't help us grow in our faith. I'm not saying we don't learn great things about God through difficulty. I'm not saying it doesn't deepen our fellowship with God or make us more effective for ministry or help to spread the gospel or make us bolder for Christ. I, I think sometimes even suffering can be a form of discipline. I believe all of those things. But what I'm simply observing is that sometimes, in fact, even even when those other things are true, our pain is an assault on God's glory rather than us personally. Has it ever occurred to you that Satan wants to prove that you don't love God for God? He will persistently try to destroy your life, not because he primarily hates you, but because he hates God. He is not afraid of your ministry. He is not afraid of your preaching skills. He is not afraid of your influence. But he trembles under the glory of God. So the next time your life unravels, remember, God may be giving you an opportunity to prove that he is worthy of your worship. I want you to notice this specific request that is made. It is to inflict physical pain on Job. 
I don't know of anything that uh, strikes at the goodness of God like physical pain and suffering in our world today. Johnny Erickson Tata, who you know has gone through so much, remarked, Satan views disabilities as the last great stronghold to defame the good character of God. Suffering is that last frontier he exploits to smear God's trustworthiness. The devil relishes inciting people to complain. How could a good God allow my child to be born with this defect? How can I trust God who would permit cancer to take my husband of only six months? Why would I believe in a God who includes Alzheimer's and autism in his plans for people? You see, Satan wants you to doubt God's work so that you diminish God's worship. Satan wants you to question God's goodness so that you quench his glory. And so watch what happens in verse number 6. God grants permission to take Job's health, but not his life. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. I believe that this further illustrates that this isn't about Job at all because killing Job would not prove or diminish the glory of God. And so it's just a good reminder this morning, however you're hurting, whatever you might be facing, even if it gets worse, remember it may not even be about you. Now all of that being said, the fact that Satan wages war to steal God's glory doesn't mean that his persistence doesn't hurt us. Though the persistence of the devil is not primarily about us, it still works powerfully against us. And so watch what happens in verse 7. Job has to live the reality of this. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. What you have here is one of the most graphic pictures in all of the Bible. Many have speculated about what Job's disease was. Some say it was elephantiasis. Others say it was leprosy. Some argue it is a severe form of eczema or psoriasis. Some have even speculated that he had melanoma. But the fact of the matter is we, we just don't know for sure. The text simply says that he had painful boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. The word boils there indicates burning sores. It is the same word to describe the sixth plague in Egypt during the exodus of Israel. If you then survey the rest of the book, what you find is that Job faced many more traumatic symptoms. In chapter 2, verse 12, his face, facial features are unrecognizable. In chapter 3, verse 24, he loses his appetite. In chapter 3, verse 25, he is depressed. In chapter 7, verse 3, he's unable to sleep. In chapter 7, verse 5, uh, worms take residence in his wounds. In chapter 7, verse 5, his sores ooze with fluid. In chapter 9, verse 18, he has difficulty breathing. In chapter 16, verse 16, he has dark eyelids. In chapter 19, verse 17, he has foul breath. Chapter 19, verse 20, he loses weight. Chapter 30, verse 27, he has chronic pain that made rest impossible. In chapter 30, verse 30, he has a, uh, an intense fever. It's so painful 
that the only relief that Job can find is sitting on an ash heap, scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery. Charles Swindoll vividly described Job as ground zero in human form. In other words, just when you thought it couldn't get worse for Job, that is exactly what happens. His trial spirals to the depths in terms of magnitude. And I wonder if, if we have anyone here today who's been there or who is there. You thought things couldn't get worse, and then they did. Just because Satan's primary agenda is to defame the glory of God, it doesn't mean that it hurts any less when these times come in your life. During our ordeal with Carson, I knew that uh, God could be glorified through all of that, but I still had trouble sleeping at night. I still had days where I was paralyzed by fear. There were a few points on the journey where we thought that we would lose him. I wrestled with questions and anger and frustration, though I knew better. The problem is... The knowledge of God's sovereignty over trials doesn't always take the pain of living through those trials away. And so in verse number 9, you see the disheartening impact of all of this. It gets even worse for Job. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, have you ever wondered why God took or God allowed Satan to take everything out of Job's life except for his wife. <laughs> I have to confess, I can't relate to this at all. I mean, my wife Heather has been a rock for our family. But poor Job. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, we're, we're very harsh on her. Historically, that's been true. Augustine called her the devil's advocate. Chrysostom called her the devil's best scourge. John Calvin called her the embodiment of Satan. <laughs> I'm afraid to look up what Martin Luther said about her. And I understand all of that, but, but you know, we do need to remember that this woman was suffering too. She lost 10 children as well. She watched her husband go from the peak of success to the gutter of misery. She lost her livelihood and her security. The relationship that she enjoyed with Job seemed gone forever. And giving up was apparently the only solution that she could come up with. From her perspective, death was more bearable than the present conditions that they were in. I'm not defending her or her foolish words. But calling her evil does seem a bit out of bounds to me. Can you imagine how disheartening this was to Job? Remember, Satan wants to attack your life, and he uses a number of things to do that. And sometimes he uses good people that we love to discourage us. Remember, the family of Jesus wasn't always supportive. They thought at one point that he had lost his mind. In John chapter 7, verse 5, the Bible says, not even his brothers believed in him. And then there were his disciples. 
Peter denied him, and all the disciples fled the night of the cross. And I'm not saying these people are satanic, far from that. Many of them are more godly than I will ever be. But what I am saying is Satan can even use good people to dishearten us and threaten what God is doing in our lives. The most vivid example perhaps is Peter being uh, distracted by the notion of his Savior being on a cross and trying to deter Jesus from that. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to him explicitly, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. That is the discouragement that Satan often puts in our path through others. And just when you think it get, can't get worse, it does. And in ministry, it may be that the same happens to you. Maybe it's somebody you ministered to and they forsake you or someone you prayed for and they turn on you or someone you confide in and they betray that trust. Maybe you reach for the right hand of fellowship and you get the right fist of fellowship instead. I don't know what form it will take, but I'll tell you this. I was amazed when Carson was sick, how the people of God supported us, but I was also stunned by how some people behaved. I could tell you, for example, about a lady in our church that got upset because she did not like the music that we were singing in our church. And so she wrote me a letter and she said, God gave your son cancer because of the music we're singing in our church. And then she said, and if you don't fix it, God may kill your wife as well. And you wonder, is this what God has called me to do? This is the disheartening attack that Satan puts in our life to cause us to question, is serving God even worth it? But even when you wonder how people could treat you the way that they do, remember something, it may not even be about you. You're not the main character in the story. God is. You may be desperately hurting this morning, but here's a truth that kept me anchored. The greater the pain, the greater the potential for God's glory. Don't dismiss the pain. Don't run from the pain. Use it for God's glory. Embrace it as an act of worship. Don't cry out against God. Point others to God. When the devil's persistence works powerfully against you, be even more persistent with your faithfulness. The persistence of the devil, it will disturb you. But I want to show you this. The perspective of a disciple will deliver you if you let it. Look at verse number 10. I love these words. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. His response reveals the true perspective of a disciple. He calls her a, he, he says foolish, uh, he says don't act as the foolish women. He, he's not calling her foolish, but he's saying your words are foolish. You are acting like you don't even know God. Stop talking like an unbeliever. 
And so in verse 10, he asks a rhetorical question that underscores this perspective that all of us need in times of trouble. And basically, here's what he says. What right do we have to accept the blessings of God without also accepting adversity from the hand of the Lord? You know, it's amazing to me how unbelievers who never acknowledge God's provision in their lives are quick to chastise him when things go wrong. Where was God on September 11th? Where was he during Hurricane Katrina? Where was he when my father died? Where was he when my wife left? Where was he when I lost my life savings? And at the first sign of trouble, they mock the reality of God. But before we cast judgment, can we not ask how often are we guilty of the same thing? We never thank God for our health, but we cry foul if we're struck with illness. We never thank God for our family, but we're tempted to curse Him if one of them are taken away. We seldom thank God for the tranquility of multiple beautiful days, but we're quick to question Him when a tornado sweeps through our neighborhood like it did over at East Dallas a few weeks ago. What right do we have to ignore God when things are well and then demand answers when they are not? Job's perspective reminds us that followers of Christ accept the blessings that God gives as gifts that we can handle and that God has reasons when we suffer even if we don't understand those. When He blesses us it is for our good and when we, He allows affliction it is for our good. And it is not for us to decide. It is the hand of God. And so verse 10 says, in all of this Job did not sin with his lips. I don't know how bad things have gotten for you, but I do know this. You can live a life that honors God. You can keep serving God. Your ministry can bear fruit. You can live and not sin against God. The key is accepting good and adversity, believing that God knows best. You say, well, what kind of God would allow such things? It's not fair. I deserve more than this. God can't possibly understand what I'm up against or how I feel. God would never suffer the way He allows us to suffer. Oh, really? Can I remind you that it was not fair when God put His Son on the cross? And can I remind you that Jesus did not deserve to die for our sins? And can I remind you it was not primarily about Him, it was primarily about you and about me. Yet the Bible says that He was pierced through for our transgressions, He was bruised for our inequities, He carried our griefs, He bore our sorrows, He endured the, sh- the suffering and despised the shame as our chastening and our chastisement fell upon him and all the while God the Father watched his son weep over that which he did not cause and bleed for that which he did not do and cry for help that would not come. And it had nothing to do with him. 
For you see, the cross was the eternal battleground for the glory of God and the souls of men and women. And because Jesus Christ was obedient unto the point of death, the Bible says that God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why he died on that cross. And friend, if the Son of God would die and suffer for the glory of his Father, should we not be willing to do the same? You are never more like Jesus than when you suffer for and suffer in the kingdom of God. So even if it gets worse, keep trusting him. Keep serving him. Keep praying. Keep worshiping. Keep moving forward because it will be worth it if you do.